Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, you're invited to join our chat room by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. My partner, Ravinder, is here in the studio and monitoring the chat room now. So, Rav, say hello to everyone and share your thoughts on last week's show. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, last week's show was really interesting. They're always interesting, but that one, you know, gave us lots of food for thought. I suppose I've always thought a lot about being good for goodness sake. Um, I think that I think that is more spiritual than being good for the sake of your faith or because you're told to or for some reward in heaven or all of those kinds of things. So um, you're talking about the spotlight from last week? You know, the whole idea behind uh, his book as well, you know. Um, yeah. Um, but what was really interesting about um, the interview last week was the fact that even though he is an atheist, he does see the practical applications for having faith as well. So he will tell some of his um, patients to go back to church because there are all of those additional benefits that come from it. You know, the benefits of community, the benefits that come, from, you know, to your health and your well-being. So, yeah, I referred to him as a pragmatic atheist, and he liked that, said from here on in, that's how he's going to refer to himself. And that is very pragmatic. Bottom line is, there are many times that having a spiritual connection uh, works to your advantage. Uh, there's a lot of research that shows uh, that's an important element, that that having that extended community, having that support, uh, et cetera, and so forth, as I pointed out in the show last week, provides hope. And hope is incredibly powerful when it comes to, to healing. It is indeed. In today's spotlight, now, I would like to discuss the power of suggestion. I have often addressed the various sorts of primes that can influence our decisions, such as the presence of a hand sanitizer. This, for example, is how it might work. Provide a computerized test designed to measure conservative or liberal attitudes. Wait a day after the subject has finished the test and ask them to come back on some pretense that there was a computer glitch and have them take the same test again, but this time with a jar of hand sanitizer on the desk where they sit. You will find that the presence of the hand sanitizer skews the subject's score more toward the conservative. Why? Think about it for a minute. Hand sanitizer suggests what? Germs, disease, caution, beware, be careful, be safe, and so forth. All of those values more, are more closely held, typically by conservatives. This sort of thing is called a prime, and the suggestion power behind a prime can be quite powerful, acting on our minds in ways we fail to recognize, predisposing our decisions, our judgment, and our action. Every day we meet suggestions in various forms. Mom tells us to wear our coat or we'll catch a cold. The television informs us the gombu is coming to town and we're going to get it. But if we buy XYZ at the local drugstore, will be comfortable and heal quickly. We pass a local bakery and the smell invites us in for that pastry we swore we were going to avoid. A tin sits on the counter with a sign suggesting we tip, so we tip the counter clerk or feel that we have slighted them. A credit card sign boldly displayed during a charity drive increases the amount we give. 
We see a movie and the Coca-Cola ad makes us thirsty. We even taste the Coke before we rush down to buy one. Our every sense is played upon by those who understand suggestion and priming. Even color has a psychological influence. We attend church while the speaker, elevated by a platform, forces our eyes to lift upward, and the cadence of the speech seems to entrain us, and the statues and murals on the wall suggest a deepening of innermost fears and feelings. Everywhere, and I mean everywhere, we are suggested this way and that. Fiona Barton stated, The imagination is such a powerful tool. Suggestion is all you need. People fill in the gaps. Think about that. The fast car suggests what? The beautiful, scantily clad woman suggests what? The handsome man in a finely tailored suit suggests what? The glass of wine with dinner in a fine restaurant viewed in a film suggests what? The motorhome shown by a picturesque lake suggests what? On and on go the images used to sell us everything. Something I've fleshed out much more thoroughly in my book's choices and illusion and gotcha the subordination of free will. But what would our lives be like without all the suggestions we are immersed in? Who would we be if not trapped in some new consumption cycle? What would we discuss if not for the different suggestions that swirl about us? How would we feel if so much fear and greed failed to ignite our imaginations? For me, I believe the only defense against being perpetually upon persuaded by the power of suggestion is to rise above all those suggestions, all those primes, recognize them for what they are. My thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder? You know, I find the whole subject of primes really interesting. As you say, you cover that in your books, and I think particularly about gotcha. You know, there are... The the prime that um, I always just found interesting was if the waitress in a restaurant is wearing red, she'll get bigger tips regardless if the guest is um, male or female. So all of that stuff... um, is really interesting, but I think the most important part is that, you know, you have to learn how your subconscious works because if you don't, you don't have any chance in discovering who you really are. So you have to have, you know, you have to have some understanding about how it all works. And so I would definitely recommend your books, Choices and Gotcha, and obviously uh, the book by our guest today too. You know, and he is the real expert on this. I mean, lots of people have written about these things. I mean, prominent writers, much more capable than myself, like Malcolm Gladwell. And 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 we all turn and cite this man. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to the show today with Professor John Barr. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Dr. Ralph Lewis, and we discussed his book, Finding Purpose in a Godless World, Why We Care Even If the Universe Doesn't. Gory wrote, Atheistophobia? The Fear of Cognitive Dissonance? I'm not sure I even get that one, Gory, but okay. Dennis wrote, nothing like a reductionistic, materialistic, with no imagination or a sense of wonder. I wish you had another hour to cross-examine, so to speak. Well, Dennis, I didn't think I was cross-examining. It was agreed that we saw the world maybe differently uh, in some ways, but it was a very, I I enjoyed the conversation very much. Dr. Lewis, of course, enjoyed the conversation very much. We've arranged to do another show and uh, flesh this out more specifically. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, the only way I can come to know, and I'll put that word in quotation marks, um, any sense of my self-understanding is to thoroughly question all those things that I might hold 
whether they be prejudices or biases, uh, beliefs of any sort. And so whenever I have the opportunity to converse with someone that holds a, an opposing viewpoint, I welcome that. Beth wrote, interesting. He encourages his patients to go back to religion when he does not believe that God is necessary, but perhaps it has to do with the community aspect of it all being connected has lots of advantages. Basically what you said, Ravinder. Richard commented, another show for which an hour is inadequate. And I so agree. Moving on. Sam wrote, I want you to know how much your products have affected my life in the positive. I use the bodybuilding, quantum younging, and fitness MP3s when working out. My attitude towards working out has changed. I used to see it as a drudgery. Now, after using your products, I can't wait to work out. I really enjoy it. So thank you. I'm a changed person, I believe, and therefore luck and success are mine. Finally, Vicky wrote, I just want to let Eldon know the fantastic results I have had with the many CDs I have purchased. It's only been a few weeks since we started using them, and we have seen dramatic results already. For example, my hubby has been using the Stop Snoring in a Talk CD, and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have almost stopped. He doesn't wake up with a raw throat anymore. I used to hear him from the other end of a large house. This has been a remarkable result. Thank you. Well, thank all of you. We appreciate your letters. Um, we're out of time for them today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show. And I have been really looking forward to this. And it is a fabulous book. You're going to have to go right out and get it. Before you know it, the unconscious reasons we do what we do with Professor John Barg. So let me tell you a little about our guest. John A. Barg is a social psychologist currently working at Yale University, where he has formed the Automaticity and Cognition Motivation and Evaluation Laboratory. A-C-M-E. He is the James Rowland Engel Professor of Psychology and Professor of Management at Yale University. Professor Barg is particularly famous for his demonstrations of priming, affecting action. One of the most well-known of these studies reported that reading words related to elderliness, such as Florida and bingo, caused subjects to walk slower when exiting the laboratory, compared to subjects who read words unrelated to the elderly. Okay, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor John Bart. Thank you, Elvin. It's a, a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, it's indeed mine. I, I, I have to tell you, your book is very compelling. It's one of the best books I've read in, in a very, very long time. Uh, I love the way you've written it. Um, it's got a lot of style and a lot of humor, and it's a fun book. But more importantly, it's uh, it's absolutely educational. So I want to thank you for that, and I want to recommend it to all of our readers. This is number one on my reading list this year. Go get the book. Uh, before you know it, the unconscious reasons we do what we do. So on that, Professor, look, we like to know three things. Who's the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? To begin with, then, to that end, what are you passionate about? And what led you to writing your new book? You know, it's funny. Uh, I think I'm passionate about the same things everybody is. And uh, I, I really wanted to know the meaning of life. I mean, I really wanted to know the basic existential question when I was in high school and college. And that is, you know, why are we here and what's the point of it all? And uh, it was funny because when I was in high school, we had a, a big controversy uh, about uh, B.F. Skinner's book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity. This is about 1971. And, I remember. Uh, at, yeah. And, and at the same time, it was on the cover of Time magazine. And I was like 14 or 15. And right before that, there was an issue of Time magazine, which is the magazine we got at home, saying, Is God Dead? And so, you know, I was like, what? I was raised very uh, a strict Irish Catholic. I uh, went to church all the time, even during the week. Uh, I was uh, in that environment. And here we are, you know, is God dead? What is that? And then we have B.F. Uh, Skinner saying, scientifically, there's no reason to believe in, in free will and that we have any control over what we do. And this was a bit of a shock, you know, and I was just sort of uh, opening my eyes intellectually, you know, age 13 or 14. 
And mm-hmm. uh, I wanted the answers to these questions. And, and fortunately for me, uh, this is the time, the 1970s, when psychology was coming out of the Skinnerian doldrums, of the behaviorist doldrums, and finally, for the first time, starting to study the mind in a scientific and systematic way. And before that, behaviorists forbid it. We could not study the conscious mind. We couldn't study the mind in any regard, unconscious or conscious. It was taboo, believe yeah, it or it not. It was a whole so, subjectivity issue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, believe it or not, you know, psychology has only been studying uh, the mind, thought, uh, either conscious or unconscious, for only 40 years. It, it, it's a really, really new science as they go. And uh, I happen to be around for all of it because I started in the 1970s when all this was starting. So I, my question was, well, yeah, how much control do we have over we over what we think, feel and behave and what we do? And, and, and that should be an open scientific question instead of answers given by theory like dogma, such as Freud's, you know, okay, the unconscious rules everything without any scientific evidence, uh, you know, based on case studies. Skinner's work was based on pigeons and rats, so not human beings. In fact, when he tried to extend it to human beings, he failed utterly, and and that's what helped uh, usher in the cognitive revolution when we finally studied the human mind. So we didn't have any scientific evidence. We didn't have any answers to these questions, but we had a big assumption, and cognitive uh, psychology and, and the revolution that happened really went full swing the other way. The pendulum swung all the way to the other side and said, our conscious mind is in total control over everything we think, feel, and behave. And major people in psychology were saying this as if it was dogma. And I was like, what? This is just another dogma. We have an Mm -hmm. untested assumption, just like the other two. It's just different. It says everything is conscious instead of everything is unconscious. But we need to look at this scientifically and get at the truth. And that's what the last 30 or 40 years Uh, has been about, and that's where I started with little baby steps around 1980, and and slowly and slowly and slowly what emerged was a lot of what we do and a lot of what we think and feel is not conscious. It is unconscious. It's it's for reasons of evolutionary uh, drives and motives. It's for uh, carryover effects from one situation to another. It's, It's because we go beyond the information out there in our minds and make assumptions that aren't uh, aren't really uh, present in the in the world we're looking at. There's lots of stuff going on that's uh, unconscious. It's not the whole story because we have control over these uh, these things ultimately. But that's that's where we are, and it's been a very exciting time for me because at just the moment I was having these these big questions in my life, and everyone has these big questions. The opportunity to actually study them emerged for the first time in human history, and boom, that's what I've been doing. Uh, you know, I, I relate to that. I think how wonderful that is. Uh, you know, let me ask you this, Professor. You open your book by essentially telling a story about your brother-in-law who is a rocket scientist, okay? Yes, yes. And, and you explain to this rocket scientist, um, you know, the influence of primes in some of your research, and he was in complete denial. Mm-hmm. To this day... It seems like, you know, most people that I speak to absolutely refuse to accept the notion that they're not really making their own choices in a very large portion of of choices that we think we make. Do you still meet that same kind of resistance? Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, because it's common sense. You know, uh, it, it's what it, it's it's what it, we can only be aware of what we're aware of. We can only uh, remember and be aware of the things that are in our consciousness. It's that I give the analogy of the um, the wavelength spectrum. You know, if you look at it, only a very narrow band of all the wavelengths that exist in the universe, only a very narrow band of those are, are visible to the human eye. Mm-hmm. All the others, microwaves, X-ray, uh, uh, X-rays, all the other kinds of uh, television, radio, all those kinds of waves are invisible to us. We would never know they were there if we just rely on our senses and our common sense because they're not there to our common sense and, and to our awareness. Any science goes beyond what's obvious. If, we, if it didn't, we'd all believe in the flat earth. You know, many people even still do. But we believe in a flat earth because that's the way it appears to our senses. And what science always does is go beyond the surface to find out what's there that's not just so obvious to our senses. And this is what we finally have with this scientific research on unconscious and conscious influences on us. We have for the first time things uh, that the science can tell us that we could never figure out for ourselves. 
I couldn't have figured it out because it's invisible to us and it's outside of our awareness. So you have to be open to the idea that science can find out things that aren't available to your senses. And we accept that idea in all the other sciences. We just need to accept it in this one, too. I agree totally. And in fact, I used that flat earth uh, analogy earlier today in a meeting I was in. You heard today's spotlight, Professor. What have I got wrong? And do you think any of us can ever truly protect against uh, the power of primes or suggestion? Absolutely. And I, I heard uh, what you and Ravinda said uh, about it. And I, I think that you're really on to the answer. And the answer is the only way you can do anything about them is to accept they exist. If you don't, then you're just sticking your head in the sand and you're going to be at the mercy of them. And we already are pushed around by politicians, by advertisers, by people who do know how they work. And they're you know, laughing at us because we just pretend and we don't uh, accept the fact that, that these influences are happening because we don't think that advertisers are influencing what we buy or, or what we consume at home. And they do. They, they, they actually affect what we eat when we're watching television and what we drink. Uh, they're at home while we're watching television. They know that. Politicians know that they can move us around by making us afraid. They can make us more conservative by making us afraid. They can make us more liberal by making us feel safe. And they do that all the time. You know, they move us yeah. back and forth depending on what their goals are. So we're being manipulated and we're being moved around by people who do know what's going on. And the worst thing we can do is, is to pretend or I guess in this, you know, uh, uh, comforting belief that we're always in control of everything. It's a delusion that actually makes us more vulnerable. And in the in the ironic twist of this whole thing, people who believe they have total free will by necessity then have less free will than people who realize they don't. Okay, and I like to get any controversy that's out there out of the way right away, Professor, because we, you know, I'm fortunate. I think we have a, a very interesting audience, and they seem to be well-educated, and I get lots of letters if I miss some point. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so your work involving priming with elderly people has been cited more than 4,000 times. But it's come under some scrutiny due to arguably a failure to replicate. Now, I'm aware of reports of failures to replicate findings from social distance priming, achievement goal priming, lonely people's preferences for hot baths. Why do you think that is? And would you care to comment on what some have called your scathing personal attacks on Ed Young and others who reported <laughs> failures to, to replicate? Yeah, yeah. Whoa. Um, sure. <laughs> sure. I don't There's blame a whole lot to answer there, and it's—I uh, don't know if we have time uh, in this hour, but um, a couple of things. Uh, I wrote a blog post in 2012 that uh, I, I was a bit tongue-in-cheek, and it did not come off uh, across that way. Um, and I—I uh, I, I don't know about scathing, but I, I will say that it made some points that I think are still valid. One is that the journalism on the single study that failed to replicate. Uh, in, a, in a Discover blog, Discover blog, uh, website blog, was then picked up uh, by uh, Nature magazine, and then that was picked up by The Economist uh, with uh, worldwide circulation. So it went up the food chain of journalism, and the headline or the title was that this one study proves by itself that this, uh, this effect was not true. Now, there were dozens of studies that had already been done, and I think something like uh, 10 or so exact replications of the elderly walking study that were published in the best journals in the field. And now we have somebody doing a study where they changed uh, very important aspects of the procedure. They uh, called people's conscious attention to walking away from the experiment when we never did so. And they translated our materials into French and used primes that were much lower frequency in the French language than our primes were in the English language. And the lower the frequency of the word, the less it's going to have an impact on somebody. And so you make all those changes and you don't replicate. Uh, and then the journalist picks it up with those changes and says this one study, even though it had all these changes and flaws, proves that all the other studies are wrong. I didn't, I didn't like that. I don't think that was fair. I don't think the title of the, of the journalist's article should have been, uh, you know, another social psychology study of, uh, found to be not true. And the other part of it was this was published in a, in a journal where you pay to get your work published. And it has an acceptance rate of 85%. They accept 85% of the, of the studies sent to them. 
Whereas the journals that I, I published in and the other replications published in have the exact opposite. They reject 85%. So they have a little higher standards for what they get published. And they don't take money, a person's money, to get a, a paper published. So my scathing attack really was about the journalist, I think, irresponsible uh, packaging and title um, of, of, uh, of reporting of that one, uh, I think, flawed study. And the other, the business model of paying uh, a journal to have your stuff published uh, without very very much scrutiny in terms of peer review. That just overthrew everything I knew about how science should be done. Now that's the reason for that blog post, and I I, I really thought I was more tongue in cheek, but it really uh, hit the fan at a time when I was a little out of tune uh, with the field and how the field had moved and how the field was now skeptical of studies with small numbers of people in them, relatively small numbers of people, and I was really out of touch. I was. Uh, as, as the book details, I was raising my daughter as a, as a single as a single parent uh, with, you know, 24 seven custody and I was doing the best mm -hmm. I could. Actually, I was also in the middle of a custody battle at that time fighting for my daughter, uh, which I won. Uh, but I was really uh, consumed by the court. I was I would run over from the, the nearby uh, circuit court and uh, or county court and uh, run over to teach my class, uh, literally running the five blocks to teach my class. And I didn't have any time for anything else. So, you know, this is sort of a perfect storm in my life when I think looking back, if I had more time to devote to what was going on in the field with these replication controversies, I probably would have played things differently. But I was just barely keeping my nose above water. Um, I realized that this was not take this blog post was not taken the right way at the time, and I took it down after two months. Other people, for whatever their motivation is, have kept it alive and, and keep it on their website so everyone can keep reading it, you know, seven years later. But I took it down after two months because I realized it was horribly misunderstood and also that I really did not understand the, the feeling of people in the field at the time. I really, really misread. Uh, where people were about these issues. And uh, I would have done things differently if I had known that. I don't think I could have done anything different because of what was going on in my personal life, my home life. Uh, and that was the most important thing in my life. And I had to devote my priorities to that before anything else, before my work. Like, well, that's for what it's one. worth. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. For what yeah. it's worth, well, you know, the blog is out there. Everybody can read it. I didn't, I didn't take it that way. And, and I do, you know, and the problem... Sometimes when you uh, study the mind as you look initially for motives and and I look at this and I, there are a lot of people, just as we said at the beginning of the hour, who resist the idea that you could be right, because that's just not consistent with their common sense, as you put it. They know they're making the choice. So wouldn't it be better if. If your research was flawed and we really weren't as puppeted as perhaps indeed we really are. That was my takeaway for what it's worth. I thought the attacks on it were unfair. All yeah, right. I, we've I, got... I have to say thank you for that. Um, but I, I also want to say that I, I do think that, uh, you know, being more uh, concerned about the replicability of our, of our science is a good thing overall. I think that unfortunately it's been weaponized by some people to attack uh, findings that go against their pet theories and to try to embarrass people. And unfortunately, you know, the incivility uh, is out there on social media and it's in our society. It's not just in psychology. And unfortunately, it is also in psychology. And, and it's, uh, uh, you know, there's some bullying and bad things said back and forth and sort of reputation smearing kinds of things said that were unfortunate. Um, but I do think the overall idea, if it can be done in a, in a sort of a you know, professional, civil, uh, a nice, nicer way is a good thing, you know, to try to uh, improve our methods and, and use larger samples and things like that to um, uh, to to have a more replicable uh, uh, set of findings that stand the test of time. I think that that is a goal everyone wants. And I'm certainly not against that. I just have some problems about the way it's been conducted. I totally agree, and I think, you know, particularly where priming was concerned, uh, you know, the nature of the questions that were, raised against, that were raised against it. I think Kahneman's letter, open letter, as to how to approach that, was very, very helpful. Uh, yes. But I think we have to understand, you know, even at that, there is a... I posted just yesterday um, a study that shows how many people simply do not believe or accept science anymore. Um, yes. And, you know, so 
verifiability, replication of research, it's all very important. I totally agree with you. Anyway, that said, we've got a break, Professor. Uh, So we're speaking with Professor John Barg about his work and book, Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons Why We Do What We Do. Professor, is it barge or barg? It's barge like the boat, but I don't really care, so it's fine to call me. Okay, I, no, 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 no. I want to yeah. say it correctly. I greatly admire your work. You've got one name. You deserve to have it said correctly. Thank you. Fine. All Thank right, you. so it's Professor John Barge, the book, the un- before you know it, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do. I strongly recommend this book to you. Uh, it's number one this year on everything I've read. You know the guests that we have every week. You know I read at least one book every single week. This one is the best. Go get it. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at beforeyouknowitbook.com. Now, we have video for you in the uh, chat room today featuring the effects of priming. So if you're not already in the chat room, it's time to get on over there, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do please stay tuned. We'll be right back and you'll learn a lot more about what you think you choose that you're not really choosing. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to InnerTalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor John Barge about his work and book, Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do. Once again, I'm going to plug this book because I I just feel that if you 
if you understand this, you have an opportunity not to be puppeted the way we see so many today. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at Before You Know It Book. One word, Before You Know It Book.com. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. As you know by now, music psychology is a new avocation of mine, and it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Okay, Professor, your chosen music is Heartbreaker by Led Zeppelin. I know the story behind this because you provided it, but please share with our audience why it is so special to you and how it informs us about who you are. You know, thank you. I loved it. Uh, I, was, I was laughing while you were playing it there because I knew why. Uh, it's the four minutes and 14 seconds that changed my life. I heard that for the first time when it came out. The album came out in 1968. Uh, I was 13 years old, and I'd never, and no one had ever heard anything like that before. And it really, it just, especially for a 13-year-old male, you know, back then, especially, um, uh, it, it just, it, it, it was empowering. It, uh, it was wild. It, it just opened the door for my childhood and opened the door to the future. And it basically said. You know, I feel still the same way as I just heard that now, and I'm 63. I, I listen to that song. I feel like I can do anything. I just feel like I can overcome, and I can do if I want to. I'm just going to go for it. Damn the damn the torpedoes! And if I fail, I fail, but I'm going to go for it. And, and and that that that's the message. I don't know even if that's in the lyrics. You know, and the lyrics are, are about you know sort of a misogynist kind of a, idea about women. Really, if you if you listen right. to it. It, it's the music, you know. It's the bass line. It's John Paul Jones. It, it's the it's John Bottom on the drums. I mean, it's just the bass. No one had ever heard anything that powerful uh, before. And uh, the whole the whole point of that group was was just the unleashed power of potential. And it just struck me like a like Saint Saint like Saul getting hit by lightning and becoming Saint Paul. That's what happened to me. That was my lightning bolt. Interesting. And at the age of 14, which, you know, for all intent and purposes, the data shows us our most uh, the, the music we choose to be our very favorite falls between the ages of 14 and 15. I'm not sure why that is, but yeah. that's why. Yeah. Very I'd interesting. Like to, I know. I'd like to understand that better myself, but that's absolutely true. <laughs> Let's turn to your book, sir. Um uh, how is the scientific unconscious as you see it different from Freud's? Yeah, Freud, uh, it's a really, really interesting story of, of what led to Freud. You know, Freud, a lot of people think that he came out of this totally uh, uh, out of new cloth, and it's not true. There was 150 years of, of medical science trying to understand psychosomatic illnesses, people who were sick and under distress but they could not find any physical cause for it, and, and uh, they didn't know why. And so a lot of the time they thought it was possession by an evil spirit or possession by a demon. It, even into the 1880s, that's what most physicians thought, uh, that it was mm -hmm. a possession by an evil evil spirit. Uh, but Freud and, and Pierre Janet at the same time, separate uh, places, separate hospitals, actually took it seriously and said, you know, I'm not going to uh, say this is an evil spirit. I'm going to look for an actual physical cause. And they, for the first time, included the mind as a physical cause. And the mind is part of the body, not separate from the body. And, and the mind could have disorders that actually led to physical symptoms and physical problems. And that was a huge breakthrough uh, in, in terms of not just uh, medicine, but in terms of our understanding of how the mind and body are connected to each other. We had hundreds of years of Descartes and this dualism idea that the mind is somehow detached, metaphysical, separate. And they, they uh, put the, the, brought the mind back into the body and said it it's also uh, participates in physical things like, like illnesses, too. The problem is they, uh, they didn't really have the scientific method, and they based their theories and their, their uh, 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 studies and everything on case studies on a very few people. Uh, certainly not a random sample of human beings by any means. These are mental patients. These are people with, with problems. Pierre Genet recognized that these were special people, and he said, we cannot uh, generalize from these mental patients uh, in our hospitals to how everybody functions, uh, normal people around the world. But uh, Freud insisted 
that that we could. And so uh, he basically uh, thought the unconscious mind was separate, a separate mind playing by its own rules because of people with split personality or schizoid disorders who actually became a different personality uh, and then went back and forth. So he thought the unconscious mind was driving the alternative personality, the split personality, and uh, said, okay, it's a separate mind in there. And uh, well, no, not all of us have a split personality. It's actually fairly rare. Uh, and so the, the science is basically showing uh, with neural imaging and fMRI studies, and it's very, very clear, the same brain regions operate when you're in unconscious mode and conscious mode, the same reward structures, the same kinds of uh, sensory structures. If you uh, have unconscious effects going on and image the brain, you find the same areas are active as when the person does the same thing consciously. We have one mind. It can go in conscious and con unconscious modes, but it's not a separate mind with its own rules. And it's certainly not self-destructive and it's certainly not maladaptive, which is how Freud uh, painted it. It's actually evolved over time through natural selection to be very adaptive and helpful to get us what we are trying to get. Let, let me ask, I mean, it, 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 your answer provokes two thoughts. I mean, first, as a thought, you know, Freud was a devout atheist, and so he's not likely to take this notion of evil spirits seriously. No such right, thing. Right. And then and that gave him a, a definite advantage. It reminds me, you know, of stories uh, where, you know, the theists just simply, uh, as in Galileo's case, take that, for example, would not look right. through the telescope because they already knew the answer. Okay. Right, right. So Freud had a advantage that that we all benefit from. But but the next thing that comes to my mind that I have to ask you about, Professor, is, you know, Libet made himself famous with his cortical evoked potential, the P300 wave, of originating in areas of the unconscious. Um, when you look at the research today, fMRI, PET, etc., um, you're saying, if I understand you correctly, that there is no such thing as an area of the unconscious. That's right. There's no separate uh, uh, mind or system of the mind that's an unconscious uh, separate from the conscious mind. It's, it's uh, all one mind. Okay. So now if we all have one mind... What is it we mean when we say we're unconsciously, we are primed at an unconscious level to behave or make choices at a conscious level? As, sure. How do you see that hierarchy splitting? Sure, sure. There's impulses coming from all over the place as far as what we should do and, and how we should feel. Most of these are unconsciously generated. Even William James, the father of American psychology, the Harvard professor, yeah. 1890, said that uh, what, what we do is actually not a conscious, a, a, an act of conscious will at all. It comes from impulses to act that are generated from our goals and our situation and also what other people are doing. You know, we imitate and mimic and there's lots of uh, impulses to do certain things and feel certain things. And they're all unconsciously generated. And what we do consciously is basically make sense out of it try to understand why we're doing what we're doing, come up with a good explanation, we think, but it is an explanation. It's something after the fact. And there's really interesting research by people like Michael Gazaniga, who uh, is considered yeah. the father of cognitive neuroscience, who who did uh, work with uh, split brain patients or hypnotized patients, you know, and, and, and he remarked that, you know, I tell them they're gonna go, uh, when I snap my fingers, uh, they're gonna get down on the floor and crawl around their hands and knees. Uh, and three, two, one, you know, snap, and, and they do that. And he said, they immediately say, oh, uh, I, I think I lost an earring down here. Or I tell them they're going to walk out of the room when I snap my fingers. They get up and walk out of the room right past me. Oh, I'm thirsty. I need a drink of water. So what he said was, was remarkable is we're so facile at understanding in a, a plausible, reasonable way what we're doing, at, but it's always after the fact, as if we're building a narrative about the plausible good reasons for what we're doing. So the impulses are generated from a variety, the evolutionary systems, the, the mimicry imitation systems, our goals, uh, telling us what's good for the goal. All these things are coming to, uh, to impulses unconsciously, and we're making sense of them consciously. And it's sort of, you know, how people take the iceberg and make that an analogy with conscious and unconscious mind. And the unconscious is the part of the iceberg below the water. Uh, I like dolphins. You know, my, my analogy is dolphins because dolphins breathe air. They have to come up. They're mammals. They have to come out of the water to breathe. 
So they're in the water and they come out of the water and they breathe the air and they go back in the water. So what's going on here is sort of an interplay dynamically between, say, the water is unconscious influences coming out into consciousness and doing something consciously and then get, getting back in the water. So what, what happens unconsciously influences our conscious experience, but our conscious experience also influences our unconscious experiences and influences afterwards when things carry over. And I have a really good example of this I want to share because I love this story. I love this thing. It's road Please. rage. Yeah. yeah, it's road rage, right? Now, mm -hmm. you, I hope you laugh because I laugh at myself because I do this, right? You're, you're on the interstate. You're on Route 90. You know, you're Interstate 90 right by where you are there. Right. Uh, yeah, and uh, or 84, right? Your major interstates. Actually, they're right by us, too. They're just on the east side of the country, the same same interstates. So you get on one of those, and someone cuts you off. It's like, yeah, a jerk, you know, and you're a little ticked off. You know, someone just cuts you off like that. And then the next person cuts you off. Hey, you know, get a little madder. And then the third person, what? What's, you know, and then the fourth person, what the, what's going, yeah, what's going on? And you really get <laughs> mad at that fourth. And then the fifth, you're about to, you know, kill the guy, road rage, right? Well, look, it's not the same person doing it five times. That fifth person just did it once. The first person just did it once. Why are we so much madder at the fifth person? It's because it carries over. The one experience carries over to the next. We feel even madder because we're building on the anger we already had. And we act to the fifth person as if they're so much worse than the first person, even though they did the same thing. And that's how things carry over from one situation, from one moment to the next and build up. And we experience, though, just the present moment, not realizing the influence of the recent past on us. Right. All right. Now, look, so I want to make sure I understand this. We have multiple accumulations of input occurring simultaneously across the brain. Uh, split brain studies show us that in some instances, uh, the left brain may tell us that uh, a young person wants to be a race car driver when he grows up and the right brain may say they want to be an artist so so obviously we have even competing uh, ideas about what's important to us but somehow these all compete to where in a sense to make sure i get this right in a sense they rise to a level where they become what we hear. Maybe maybe something like analogous to the cocktail party effect, where I, I don't hear anybody until they say my name, and then suddenly, yeah, all right, I become aware of it. Uh, and when that, that stronger piece of information, whatever, however you want to describe it, uh, controls, we respond to that. Have I got that right? It isn't yeah, two brains, sure. three brains, you know, four we, brains? Like Whitman said, you know, uh, I contradict myself uh, because I contain multitudes. And we have uh, uh, many different goals and many different interests. Uh, and they do compete against each other. And they compete all the time. We're managing that competition often. Sometimes it's managed uh, for us. There's things that are uh, override. For example, uh, when you're when you're primed by witnessing somebody being helpful, you're, you tend to want to be helpful too. Someone drops some pens and you reach down to help them pick them up, but they're, they're, they're messy. There's ink all over them and you recoil because you don't want to touch something filthy and messy. So we have an evolved kind of idea to avoid uh, contamination and filth and disease that overrides the other impulse, which is to help. So we have these things going on all the time, and, and the stronger of the goals, the more important, you know, overrides the less one and sort of manage that way in some kind of hierarchy. But sure, I mean, I, I, wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be a professor and study psychology and study these issues. I also wanted to be on the radio. I was a disc jockey for 10 years in five different states, and I, I love both of them, and I had to make a decision. And often we do have to make these choices in our life, uh, and, and things are, are, are there. I, I do think it comes down to whatever fits your most important drives and motives that's what's going to that's what's going to carry you along the way and that's the nice way that goals cause us to like things that are good for the goal if we have good goals and we have well-meaning goals and we have important purposes in our life and those are our motivations they will win they will win out and 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 direct us uh in there in line with what the, what's good for those goals so it's really important i have a chapter in, in the book be careful what you wish for because 
our important goals, you know, really do make these decisions and override things. If our important goals are to have sex, right, then our important goals are going to come out maybe when we have power over somebody, like in all the recent cases of these, you know, famous people who use their powerful situation over weaker, less powerful people, basically to have sex. If that's what your goal is, when you have the th- a chance to pursue it, that's what you're going to do. And you're going to dismiss all the objections and all the maybe bad things that will happen to you if you get caught. It will be, ah, oh, no, 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 that's not that's not going to happen. And look what happened to all these people. So I think it's really important to have good goals, goals that are caring about other people, like a parent cares for a child, have those kinds of really good goals. And, and then when those goals play out and, and, and trump everything else and win out and drive what you do, It'll all be for the good. You know, it'll be for the higher purposes and, and important things and the good and the good you, right, that, that comes through when there are these conflicts. They will win. You know, Professor, this is another one of those shows, and I need a whole bunch more than one hour. We're just going to have to bring you back because I've got like 40 more questions here, and we didn't get into some of the really fun stuff. Uh, what all these different primes are. Everybody's going to have to get your book so they understand that. But in about 30 seconds, sir, tell everyone how's the best way to reach out to you, follow you, learn more about you, uh, obtain your blog, or you know, and, and so forth. Well, first of all, Eldon, I would love to come back. I really would. This has been... Uh, these have been very probing questions, very, very uh, important questions, and I've really enjoyed it and enjoyed also uh, talking to you because of your work uh, with Gotcha and all the other things you do. What you're trying to do is help people. And that's really what my book was, was the only reason I wrote this book was really trying to help people get the word out about what's going on in their minds they may not be aware of and what they can do about it. And the nice ending note of the book is that you can take control over all these things and even use them to your advantage. Uh, we're at uh, Facebook, Before You Know It Book on Facebook. There's a page. I put everything up, including today's uh, today's interview and everything was on there, uh, interviews on the newspaper and so forth. Um, there's a beforeyouknowitbook.com. Uh, but I think Facebook is the best way because I update that all the time and uh, people uh, follow it and, and write back and forth. Um, and, uh, and, and that's pretty much it. Um, I teach my Yale class. I have a wonderful family. I have a great life. And uh, I, I enjoy talking to you and, and people who want to get the word out who are trying to help other people in their lives. It's been indeed my pleasure, sir. Professor John Barge, that's spelled B-A-R-G-H. Get the book before you know it. All right, we're out of time. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.